morning. Good morning. Good to see you all here this morning. I see some old friends here in the pew. Hi. <laughs> Thanks for coming. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, You are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Nehemiah 13, 25. Choir today at 5 p.m. Then the video series continues at 6. Finger foods as usual. And we're getting low on pop. Sunday school class for grades 7th through 9th has begun. That's upstairs in the library, 9.30. Next Sunday is our uh, communion service. And there'll be no dinner and no evening service. So come and be with us for the communion service next Sunday. Acts and Facts and Free Grace Broadcaster are here. I should say on the new table or something like that. I don't know how to describe it. What's the, what's the board name? Gatherboard. The Gatherboard. Under the Gatherboard. Prayer meeting Wednesday at 7, Andrea's number for the prayer chain. Thank you for your giving. Pizza night, that's Friday, November the 8th, right here from 6 to 8.30. Bring your own snacks and soda, and then $3 a person for pizza. Sign up on the gather board. It's also trivia night. Also trivia night. What does that mean? <laughs> okay. And if you don't know anything, you get kicked out. <laughs> It'll be great. Come on out. Come on out on Friday, the no November the 8th. Okay. I think there's a sign up. There, there is. Um, I don't see any big notes here. Anything, <laughs> anything else that I've missed? Okay. All right, then. If there's nothing else, I'll direct you to the scripture for meditation. That's in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Read verses 1 through 7. 1778 in the Pew Bible.
Let's stand together and ask the Lord to bless our service. Ed, can I ask you to pray this morning? Thanks. Remain standing. Take your red hymnal this morning, Lord Trinity, and turn to 715, 715 in the red.
favorite hymn at this time? <clears throat> no, uh, Ed. Yes, Dr. Ed. 585 in the red. Do we have a reason for this hymn this morning? chapter, and we'll be reading 23 through 31, that's 774 in the Pew Bible. 
think I'm it today. So. Stand with me as I read. Nehemiah 13, 23 through 31. Moreover, in those days I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of the children spoke the language of Ashdod, or the language of, the one, of, of one of the other peoples, and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, You are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. This was not because of marriages like these that was it not like excuse me, was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned. Among the many nations there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you are too you are too doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? One of the sons of Jodiah, son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat, the Horonite, and I drove him away from me. Remember them, O my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. So I purified the priests and the Levites for everything foreign and was assigned to them duties each to his own task. I also made provision for the contributions of wood at designated times and for the first fruits. Remember me with favor, O my God. Yes, the Lord bless his word. Take your red hymnal one more time and turn to number 719, 719 in the red. Seven hundred and nineteen, seven one nine.
Our scripture text this morning is Nehemiah 13, the last chapter in the book. We're going to look at verses 23 and following. Last Lord's Day, we studied the Sabbath reforms which Nehemiah initiated. The problem was of the world and the worship of God. Nehemiah witnessed a desecration of the Sabbath by his own Jewish brethren. They were carrying on business as usual, manufacturing, buying, selling, trading on the Sabbath day. Foreigners were coming into Jerusalem on that day, and they were doing the same thing, the Tyranians. Nehemiah warned the people of Judah and rebuked the nobles for this. He bolted the gates, he set guards, and he warned the diehard merchants that if they camped by the walls again, he would lay hands on them, which was not going to be pleasant for them whatsoever. You say, well, who does he think he is? Well... He is the governor assigned to return to Jerusalem and set things in order by King Artaxerxes of the Persian Empire. Remember that this was the time of Israel's captivity and the people were carried into captivity and Nehemiah was returned as governor. We drew out a couple of lessons that Sabbath regulations was for Israel alone as a nation. It symbolized the rest of that God gave his people when he brought them out of the bondage of Egypt to the promised land. None but Israel ever was charged with the sin of breaking the Sabbath. Secondly, no Sabbath regulations are found in the New Testament for the Christian community. That might be a surprise to some people. Our Sabbath rest as Christians is found only in Jesus Christ, who invites us to cease from our labor our labor of self-righteousness and good works, and to enter into his rest through faith and repentance. You see the shift has moved from a day to a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, today we come to the closing verses of Nehemiah, which deal with marriage reforms. And as we come, let's ask for the Lord's enablement. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the book of Nehemiah and the things we've learned from this godly man and your spirit working through him. We pray that you will help us in this hour to, as we close out the study of the book, to think seriously of the reforms that he initiated and trying to bring the people of Israel back to a right relationship of worship with God. They had been so much part of the Persian Empire that they had forgotten or just ignored the principles of uh, marriage and the responsibilities that they had under your law. And we pray, Lord, that we might learn from them not to do what they did and to listen to what Nehemiah says in terms of reform. Bless our study, and may Jesus be honored and glorified. We pray these things in his name. 
with thanksgiving. Amen. We're looking at the subject of marriage reforms in the last chapter of the book of Nehemiah. Verse 23 tells us that Nehemiah observed men of Judah married to women from, he says, Ashdod, Amnon, and Moab. Those are people groups. People groups. Ashdod was one of the great five cities of the Philistines. It's a Philistine city. A seacoast city north of Gaza. The Ammonites, of which Tobiah was one, and the Moabites, as we saw in an earlier study, were the descendants of Lot and his ancestral union that he had had with his daughters. Not good, right? None of these nations were believers. All of them were enemies of Israel, the people of God. This is why it is very surprising to see that the men of Judah had intermarried with these people. Their intermarriage was a problem Ezra had dealt with 25 years earlier. You can read about that in Ezra chapter 9. So nothing new, but they're not progressing, they're regressing. They're going back to their old sinful lifestyles. Ezra's solution was to dissolve the marriages over a period of many months, giving ample time to relocate the wives, relocate the children back into their original root families. Nehemiah's method was a bit more drastic, as we shall see shortly. But something had to be done because Israel was being populated with really pagan people in these mixed marriages. For example, Nehemiah noticed that fully one half of the children from these mixed marriages, could only speak the language of their foreign parents. Verse 24. So who's assimilating who? Who's uh, winning who over here? They couldn't speak Hebrew at all. They were being fully acclimatized to the pagan cultures and they were losing their own identities as Israel, the nation of God. The dissolving of such marriages by Ezra had worked. It had worked for the moment. But now, 25 years later, the people were back to their old ways. It says, Nehemiah rebuked these men and called down curses on them. He also beat some of them, I think probably the worst violators, and pulled out their hair. Verse 25. <laughs> Talk about taking matters really in a drastic situation to get these guys to wise up. Can you imagine writing this down for all of us to read? But Nehemiah wasn't afraid of the courts of men, as we Christians sometimes are. He feared God. And by physically disciplining these men from Judah, he hoped to make a lasting impression on them of the seriousness of their behavior. Wise up, guys. Look what you're doing. He made them take oaths in God's name not to give their daughters in marriage to foreign men and not to take 
the daughters of such families for their sons. Verse 25. But did we not hear them make this promise back in chapter 10, verse 30? Well, yes, of course, if you look at that. But I think we who are the people of God can get caught up in the spirit and fervor of other people's actions at times, and we jump on the bandwagon, I hate to say that, but we do, the same activity the others are doing. We don't hold to the deep meaning for us that we are really playing follow the leader sometimes and we shouldn't be doing that. The promises made back in chapter 10 just seem to be, can I say it this way, the thing to do. Well, everybody's doing it, so we'll do it too. Even though it was certainly serious to make a promise to God, we talked about that oath, which was not being kept. But in our text, Nehemiah gets a little bit physical <laughs> with these violators of the law, and in so doing, he compels them to take a personal vow or an oath in God's name for what the public promised perhaps casually in chapter 10. You know, it's one thing, brethren, to stand in a huge crowd which is confessing its sin to God and say, I promise, you know, go with the crowd. It's quite another thing to be hauled before the governor personally, rebuked and beaten, and then made to take an oath in his presence concerning illegal intermarriages with foreign people. Say, well, he, did he have the authority? Well, yes, he had the authority. He was the governor sent by King Artaxerxes. There would be no blending into the woodwork this time, no melding into the crowd. Each one of them, to a man, had to answer to the governor for his own conduct. Why are you marrying foreign women and going against the laws of God? As an example to these men of Judah, as to how subtle such intermarriages were and how dangerous to one's faith in God, Nehemiah gives the illustration of Solomon. Verse 26. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Wow. One could not have picked a more appropriate example to make his point. You remember the story of Solomon. Solomon had begun his reign by asking for wisdom from the Lord to rule over Israel. He didn't ask for money. He didn't ask for power. He asked for wisdom. And because he had not asked for money and not asked for power, God honored him with, yes, wisdom for which he asked, but also with money and with power. So I say he began well. He really did, Solomon. He began with God. He put God first in his thoughts, not himself, not his own desires. As a result, the scripture says, there was no king like him. He was loved by God, and God made him king 
over all Israel. Verse 26. Boy, I'd like that wonderful phrase. He was loved by God. Loved by God. So what's the point? Well, the point is that even while all of this was going on for Solomon, verse 26 says, even he was led into sin by the foreign women he married. Yes, this is good. This is what's going on. But why is this such a terrible wickedness in God's sight? People marry people of different faiths all the time, don't they? No one seems to get bent out of shape over it. So what if a Catholic marries a Protestant? What's the big deal anyway? What if a Jew marries a Christian? Or a Mormon marries a Baptist? Notice the full text of verse 27. Must we hear now that you two are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to God by marrying foreign women? Unfaithful to God? How'd that get in there? What does marriage have to do with fidelity to God? We know we're supposed to be faithful to our spouse and any infidelity on our part would be a wicked sin. But how can a marriage itself to an unbeliever be considered infidelity to God? Well, the reason we have questions in these areas is because we're not fully convinced of what Paul told the Corinthians concerning their way of life when he wrote, you're not your own. You were bought with a price, therefore honor God with your body. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19 and 20. And the context shows that the Corinthians were engaging in cult prostitution, which was part of the practice of their old pagan worship. They were involving themselves sexually, not only with people to whom they were not married, but also with people who were pagan in their outlook and life. And Paul makes it clear that they had not reckoned that their bodies were members of Christ himself. And that in these sexual liaisons with pagan women, they were taking the members of Christ and uniting them with a prostitute. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 15. Very strong language. I didn't say it. God said it. it's in his word. See, when we begin to see our bodies not as something which belongs exclusively to ourselves to do with as we please, when we see our bodies as the temple house of God's spirit, 1 Corinthians 6 verse 19, when we see that God has a claim on us, that he bought us with his own son's blood and we're not our own, then the light begins to dawn that what we do in the body has repercussions on our relationship to God. And if we abuse our bodies or prostitute them 
in immoral lifestyles, we do what Nehemiah calls a terrible wickedness, verse 27, and we commit sin, verse 26. This is the rationale for condemning not only sexual promiscuity in our lives, but also drinking alcohol to excess, right? Smoking, which harms the body, gluttony, as well as neglect of our bodies through sleep deprivation, failing to seek medical help when we need medical help, and a general disregard and a cavalier attitude on caring for the body which belongs to God because it's indwelt by his Holy Spirit. We have to think about this. Our bodies are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. We get all upset with the feminists who defend their decision to have an abortion, saying, well, it's my body and I have a right to do with it as I please. And then we turn around and use the same rationale for justifying such things as wicked sin in some other area. Our answer to the feminists is, hey, lady, it's not your body. It belongs to the baby. And the answer God gives us in his word is, hey, it's not your body. It belongs to me. The scenario is different. The principle, however, involved is the same. We are not any more entitled to an independent Selfish use of our bodies than the feminists are of theirs. Our bodies belong to God. And this is why Nehemiah was so enraged at the sin of these men of Judah in marrying foreign wives. But saying that, I would also say it's only part of the answer. And if I might venture an opinion, not even the most important part of the answer. Infidelity to God was the accusation Nehemiah brought against these men, not only because their bodies belonged to God, but as people of faith, they had first been wed to God in heart and in spirit. And so to many outside the faith, they profess to marry one who was avowedly an idol worshiper, was to break covenant with God himself and to become an adulterer in heart and soul. That's the crux of Nehemiah's complaint against these men. Unless you doubt that God considers his people wed to him in the spiritual sense and therefore bound only to worship him alone and to promote only worship of him, let me read to you some of the startling passages from God's own word. For example, Jeremiah records that God came to him with the question, have you seen what faithless Israel has done? That's an interesting question. Jeremiah, have you seen what faithless Israel has done? And, and, and he goes on to explain. She has gone up on every high hill 
and has committed adultery there. I thought that after she had done all this, she would return to me, but she did not. And her unfaithful sister, Judah, saw it. Now you understand what they're dealing with here. Israel, Palestine, was divided the days of Solomon into a northern kingdom called Israel, the southern kingdom called Judah. So he's saying, what you did, Israel, affected your sister Judah to the south. I'm reading on. I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of her adulteries. Yet I saw that her unfaithful sister had no fear. She also went out and committed adultery with stone and wood. Now you know what they're talking about here. It's a spiritual adultery. The stone and the wood refers to the idols. The Baal was a carving out of stone, and the wood would be the Asherah poles, which were uh, carvings of naked women. And you see what they were worshiping. He goes on. Go proclaim this message towards the north. Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord, for I am merciful. Only acknowledge your guilt. Return, faithless people. I am your husband. Jeremiah 3, verse 6 and following. You see what he's saying. Spiritual adultery has been committed. Throughout the book of Ezekiel, God chided Israel, Jerusalem, for her unfaithfulness. He writes, you took your sons and your daughters whom you bore to me and you sacrificed them as food to the idols. They actually did that. Wicked. Was your prostitution not enough? You built a mound for yourself and made a lofty shrine in every public square, offering your body with increasing promiscuity to anyone who passed by. And then he lists them. Egyptians, Philistines, Assyrians, Babylonians. The idol gods of all these pagan nations. He goes on. You adulterous wife. You prefer strangers to your own husband. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I will deal with you as you deserve. Because you have despised my oath. By breaking the covenant. Ezekiel 16, verse 20 and following. Now you understand this is dealing with spiritual adultery. The idea of forsaking God for another lover, for the other lover being an idol, a stone, wood, whatever. Did you know that there is a whole book in the Bible? written to this theme of Israel as the unfaithful wife of God. It is the book of Hosea. Hosea was ordered by God, now listen to this, he was ordered by God to marry an adulterous woman. Knowing full well that she would not, would not be faithful to him. How'd you like 
God to tell you to do something like that. But Hosea, his prophet, was charged to do that. Why? Why would God order his prophet to marry a woman that God knew was not going to be faithful to Hosea? Stretches our minds, doesn't it? He answers, Because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. Hosea 1 verse 2. And in chapter 2 of Hosea, verse 5 and following, she said, I will go after my lovers who will give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. She has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain and the new wine and the oil, who lavished on her the silver, the gold, which they used for Baal worship. Oh, wow. Therefore I will take away my grain when it ripens, and my new wine when it is ready. I will take back my wool and linen, and intended to cover her nakedness. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me husband. You see what happened with Israel. God is dealing with this whole idea of marriage, but he's dealing with it in a spiritual sense. Israel, you were my wife. You were my bride. You didn't belong to the Baals, the Asherah Poles, and any of the other deities that you could find from foreign lands. You belonged to me. You were my wife. I was your husband. You went after all these other lovers. So in all of these passages, it is clear that God considered Israel to be his bride, his wife, bound in marriage through a covenant which he established with her. When Israel, therefore, violated that relationship by ignoring the law of God, by worshiping idols, God considered a such idolatry the equivalent of spiritual adultery. Israel gave up loving God and became the lover of many foreign gods and deities. In the Corinthian passage that we read earlier, Now that would be New Testament, right? Paul told these believers that to take their physical bodies and unite them with a prostitute made them one with her in body. For it is said that two shall become one flesh, which he quotes from Genesis 2 verse 24. So he's referring to a union that has occurred, which is so intimate that there is a blending of bodies into one. But then Paul went on to say something else which is even more astounding. But he who unites himself with the Lord, that's by faith, not physical. He who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 17. So not only our bodies belong to the Lord because we're purchased with the blood of Christ, but our spirits unite with God and we become one with him in heart. 
and soul. Therefore, to many outside the faith, to marry outside the faith, I should say, is a great infidelity to God whose bride we are. Young people, take note. The reason this is considered infidelity is that we have broken our faith covenant with God. The unbelieving spouse has brought a compromise into our faith and will lead to weakening of our faith, if not its total destruction. Solomon is the example that Nehemiah used. Boy, he couldn't have picked a more appropriate example. Let me read it for you. King Solomon loved many foreign women. I'm reading scripture. King Solomon loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. Remember, he did marry Pharaoh's daughter. And then he lists Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites. That would be the descendants of godless Esau. Sidonians, Jezebel was Ahab's wife. She was a Sidonian. Hittites, the wicked wives of Esau who vexed Isaac and Rebekah were the Hittites. Genesis 29 verse 46. The scripture says they were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely Turn your hearts after other gods. Nevertheless, I'm still reading scripture, Solomon held fast to them in love. 1 Kings 11, verse 1 and 2. There's no reaching Solomon. But let me pause here to say that when we have been told clearly what God requires of us and why, and then we introduce a nevertheless in our response, we are in serious trouble in our faith and thus also with our God. We wouldn't use the word nevertheless. We would say to God, yeah, but. Yeah, but. Yeah, but I don't see anything wrong with it. Yeah, but I think I can marry an unbeliever and still be a believer. Yeah, but when I marry Bill, when I marry Mary, I plan to bring them to church to hear the gospel. Brethren, we have a dozen yeah, but arguments which we use to defend actions which are contrary to the revealed will of God. And we use these to justify our conduct. We think we're wiser than God. Let me point out that Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived. Wow. What happened to him? Could he handle being married to pagan women? God said that such mixed marriages would bring a person down, lure him or her away from God. What happened to Mr. Wise Man Solomon? Don't have to guess. The scripture tells us. 
His wives led him astray. His wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians. I'm reading scripture. Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab. He did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. 1 Kings 11, verse 3 and following. Oh, and by the way, in some of these pagan worships, there was the sacrifice of their own children, which was required. And you can read about that in 2 Kings 16, verse 3, 2 Kings 17, verse 17, 2 Kings chapter 21, verse 6. Who would believe that? But they did. So I say, no, Solomon's great wisdom did not keep him faithful to God. It it is said there's no fool like a fool that's in love. And that other devotion may not be so foolish if the priorities are kept intact, but the Bible shows that Solomon's priorities were all messed up. It says, King Solomon loved many foreign women. Many. Verse 1. Verse 2 says, Solomon held fast to them in love. So now you've got the foreign women introduced, and they're bringing their culture with them. That's the thing. And then it says he held fast to them. But over against these statements of love and devotion... We also read, his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. 1 Kings 11 verse 4. Oh, something slipped here. In verse 6 of 2 Kings 11 says, Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely. The word is wholeheartedly. He loved his pagan wives more than he loved God And in an attempt to satiate his love for foreign women, he proliferated his wives to the outrageous number of 1,000. 2 Kings 11, verse 3. 1,000 wives. This guy lost it, boy. He lost it. Listen to how God interpreted Solomon's actions. Don't have to guess. I read it for you. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude, and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. 1 Kings 11, verse 9 and following. So in a very real sense, the fragmentation of the kingdom into two sectors in Palestine, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, 
the rise of evil kings, especially in the northern kingdom, which led the people astray and eventually seduced Israel as a nation to abandon God and to eventually suffer the consequences of invasion by the Babylonians and captivity. These were all the result of Solomon's decision to break covenant with God by introducing all this idolatry. He broke faith with God. What do you mean? He was unfaithful to God. That's what I mean. That spiritual union between Solomon and God was compromised in the infidelity on Solomon's part by promoting the idol deities of his pagan wives brought the entire nation to ruin. And this is why Nehemiah is so outraged at this new generation of Israelites who seem to have forgotten their history and we're in the process of repeating the same infidelity to God that Solomon had experienced. One of them, a grandson of Eliashib, the high priest, had even married a daughter of Sanballat, the enemy of God. Verse 28. And Nehemiah saw this as such a defilement of the priestly office Verse 29, that he depossessed the man of his office. Verse 28, purified the priests and the Levites all over again. Threw the guy out of the temple. Do you remember that account? Now there are some powerful lessons here for us. This is all Old Testament history. But it reaches with its tentacles into the New Testament. Lesson number one, sins of the heart often override the passion we should love, we should have for God, and in the end bring us to great heartache and pain and suffering. You know, the emotion of love is very powerful. It is. It makes senseless children out of full-fledged adults, as we saw in Solomon, who seemed to lose his head when it came to all these foreign women. As a king, you can be sure that the women sought out for Solomon were the most beautiful women in the world. Goddess-like in figure, impeccable grooming, best of breeding, if we can talk about that. 1 Kings 11 verse 3 tells us that his 700 wives, yes, I read that right, his 700 wives were of royal birth. So these women, like Pharaoh's daughter mentioned in verse 1, were all from kingly families. So Solomon not only married foreign women, he married into the royal families of these pagan nations among the very leaders who set policies for their countries in everything from war to worship. These women... <laughs> didn't stop setting policy because they walked across the border and married Solomon. They were powerful women. They were used to being part of the decision-making governments of their own nations. And because Solomon was a lovesick boy, schoolboy, whose passions overrode his wisdom, 
He was led by his wives to forsake God and become a promoter of their idolatry. Gotta please my wife. <laughs> Gotta keep her happy. Never mind that I'm going to forsake God and what he's done for me. And so God came to Solomon and God used an interesting expression in addressing him. Here it is, 1 Kings 11, verse 11. Since this, God is speaking to Solomon, since this is your attitude, and you have not kept my covenant. No, this is your attitude. So even as God came to Solomon, there had been no change in his attitude. Being confronted with his sin personally by God himself, in vision, in dream, had no effect on changing his mind. This is how foolish and how stubborn human passion can be. We can tell God to take a hike and expect no consequences. Or if we do expect consequences, we see them as something eh, trivial in comparison to us having the one we love with us. I got to tell you, in ministry, I have counseled many people on their intent to go ahead with a relationship with an unbeliever. And after all the scriptures are looked at and they are fully apprised of God's word on the matter, they sit across from my desk and they say, I don't care. I love her and I'm going to marry her. I love him and I'm going to marry him. This was Solomon. Could be you too. Of course, we want passion in our marriages. Of course, we want to feel love, to be in love, as the world talks about. But can we not have this in a Christian spouse? Can we not believe that God will direct our paths to that special someone like Abraham's servant was directed to Rebekah, who became the wife of Isaac? Wow. Must we abandon God? To find human love? Can't we love a woman? Can't we love a man who loves God too? In all of this I am saying that love is a choice as well as a passion. You can choose to love or not to love. You can be ruled by reason as well as by the heart. You can love and obey, which the scripture calls us to. Very first and most important of lessons here. And then a second lesson is this. When the heart is divided in matters of love, it will invariably be swayed towards evil and not good. When it's divided. Solomon had a divided heart. Eliashib's grandson 
had a divided heart. Wanting to serve God in the priesthood while being married to Sanballat's unbelieving daughter. Neither of these men, Solomon or Elijah's grandson, neither of these men, I'm sure, thought of their marriages as things which would bring them to spiritual compromise and ruin. They didn't work through it that way. After all, I mean, Solomon was a king of a very powerful nation whose wisdom from God was renowned for him among all the nations. And Elisha's grandson was a man of God serving in the priest's office. Certainly he knew what was going on. So these men should have been able to keep their heads about them, right? Certainly they could maintain their spiritual integrity and devotion to God if ever there were two guys that could do that. But brethren, the truth is they couldn't. And they didn't. They didn't. Solomon's wives brought him to idolatry. He didn't bring them to conversion to Jehovah and the worship of God alone. And Sanballat's son-in-law never convinced Sanballat to stop persecuting the people of God and to become one with them. He remained Sanballat, the enemy of Israel. And I have a flash for you. You're not going to convert your spouse either. You're not. A divided heart will be swayed towards evil. James says, he who doubts is like a wave on the sea, blown, tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded, unstable in all that he does. James 1, verse 7 and 8. I love my wife more than any woman on earth. I don't know what I would have done without her. I cannot believe that marriages born of love could be anything less. Everyone in love thinks that their spouse is the best in the world, and rightly so. This is why it's so important that my wife loved the God that I love and the Savior that I love. Why? Because for the Christian, I may not love my wife above God. She may not love me above God. If we were of different spiritual states, it would be extremely hard to maintain spiritual equilibrium. Why? Because I would want to please her. That's why. I would want to love her. I would want to care for her. 
This would pull me inextricably in her direction and her unbelieving philosophy of life or of the world's life would affect me. The divided heart is pulled towards compromise with sin. Whether in time sequence or out of sequence, before your marriage to your spouse, if you're a believer, you are wed to Christ as a Christian. Fidelity to him precedes all human ties. For Christ is not only your Savior, but he is your Lord. And infidelity to him is idolatry. (coughs) Paul puts it pointedly when he writes, A married man is concerned about the affairs of this world. How he can please his wife and his interests, his interests are divided. And then he says the same thing about the wife. That her love and affection is to her husband and her interests are divided. So that isn't going to upon all of us then in our marriage relationships. Yes, love your spouse by all means. We're commanded to do that. But they can't take precedence over God. Amen. Not Ever. We have to love God with all of our heart and soul and mind and spirit and anything less is idolatry. I cannot idolize a wife. You cannot idolize a husband. To do that is to be unfaithful to God. Lord Jesus, please bless us with the truth of your word. These are hard things for us to grasp at times because our emotions play fast and furious with us. They come along and they remind us that we are creatures of time and space. We want to love, we want to feel love, the warmth of love, the compassion, the cooperation, the interaction. We want it all, and rightly so if we're married. But even in such situations, no spouse is to take precedence over God. We must love you first and foremost and with all of our heart, mind, soul, spirit. And it's a marvelous thing, Lord, when we love you like that, then our marriages are even more precious to us and more blessed by you because we put God first. You bless us. And our marriages are blessed and our children are blessed. So help us to get our priorities right. Help us to zone in on what's true and faithful and to trust you for the outcomes in our lives. For this we pray in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. From the Brown Hymnal, our closing hymn is 468. 468 in the brown hymn.
wonderful hymn. The king of love, my shepherd is. It's talking about Christ. Let's stand together as we sing. of our study tonight on the life of Samson, who also had a problem (laughs) with women, you'll remember. But that's at 6 o'clock, and we bring finger foods and share and uh, study from the video, and uh, I hope to see you out. May the Lord bless you. We're dismissed.